my uh, privilege to bring, uh, open up the Word of God with you this morning. Um, it's been a great morning of just worshiping the Lord, of coming before Him and just exalting Him for who He is. And I trust that our time of the Word will uh, lift Him up even more as we look at our great God and trusting in Him. Uh, before we in- enter in our passage, let's take a moment to just seek the Lord in prayer. Father, I just lift up this morning to You. We give You thanks for the opportunity and the privilege to be gathered together in your presence, in your name, because of Jesus, our great Savior. We give you thanks for the privilege of worshiping you, of coming and lifting you up. Lord, you're worthy of all praise and worship. We give you thanks for the things we sang about, the truths that we hold dear and that we believe in. And Lord, our goal this morning is that coming into your word, we would have ears to hear and we would put into practice all the things that we discover in this beautiful portion of scripture that we're going to look at this morning. Lord, guide us, guard our hearts, be with us. As we do this this morning and help me, Lord, to just facilitate the communication of your word to your precious people. I just pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question that I want to pose to all of you. If Jesus were to spend the day with you, what would amaze him about your life? What would amaze him about your life? If Jesus called you on the phone and said, I'm coming over Tomorrow, I'm going I'm to be hanging out with you for the whole day. If he spent time with you, what would he look at in your life? What would make him go, wow, that's amazing. That's pretty amazing. Perhaps your grades could point to your grades. Look, look at my academic career. Lord, look what I've done. Or for some of you, it might point to your, your bank account, your, your emergency fund and how big it is. Others of us might might point Jesus to all the ministry we're involved in and look, look, Lord, look at all the good things I'm doing here at church. Some of us might, might, might bring him into our newly remodeled kitchen. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing, Lord? But see, posing a question like that really begins to force us to, to come to this conclusion that often the things that we think are very important to us often are not the things that are important to Jesus. And a question like that this morning also calls us to ask, Lord, what do you care about? What, what in my life would you want to see and be amazed by? And this morning I want to spend some time looking at the topic of faith. Because as we'll see this morning, faith is very important to Jesus. You see, it's very important to Jesus because faith, by very definition, is a very relational thing. It happens between two people, where one, person, where one person, us, we put our trust into Jesus. We look at him, we see, we learn more about him and who he is and all that he's proclaimed and declared, and we believe into this one. And we entrust all of ourselves into him. Faith, if you want a definition, is a humble dependence and confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ a humble dependence and confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's very personal, and that's why it's so important to Jesus Christ. Jesus wants people who, when they look at him, they marvel and they're amazed and they say, I will entrust all of myself to this one. He is worthy to be trusted. And for those of us who know Christ, there was a moment in time when we did that where we called out to the Lord and we, 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 we went to him and we, we, we believed into him. But the, the thing I want us to know this morning is that 
that faith is not just a historical moment in our life. It is something that Jesus wants there every single second, every single moment, every single day. That daily we would be growing in faith in Him. Daily we would be entrusting all of ourselves into Him. That daily we would find our confidence and our hope in Him and in who He is. There's great benefit for the man who trusts in the Lord. Jeremiah 17 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. You see, there's great benefit when we trust in Jesus. The man and the woman who trusts in Jesus is calm, peaceful, confident, unshakable in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the current of life. And not only that, but our faith in Jesus brings him glory. It honors him when we trust him. When we say, Lord, I will give all of my trust into you. I, I, will, I will believe in you 100%. Well, where can we go to find this kind of faith? Perhaps this morning we could spend some time looking at the life of Abraham or Moses or David or Paul. All men who, who trusted in Christ, who trusted in the God of Israel, who, to, who believed in the Creator and who exemplified amazing faith. But this morning I want us to turn to Luke chapter 7. Because it's actually here that Jesus, after having spent some time with a particular person, says, wow, I'm blown away. I'm seeing faith that is actually amazing me. And the person that he was talking about was none other than a Roman soldier, a centurion. And Jesus is calling us to look at this man and to see his faith and to model it. To pursue faith like this man had. Let's read the text together. Luke chapter 7 verse 1 to 10. He says, When he had completed, that is Jesus, all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who, heard, who, who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Jesus, when he saw this man, saw a faith that was unique, a faith that was amazing, and a faith that was great. And so this morning, I want us to look at a faith that amazed Jesus. And specifically, I want us to look at four characteristics of faith that amazes Jesus. Four characteristics that were part of this man's faith that made Jesus stop and go, wow. 
This is amazing. I'm blown away. Now, let me just kind of set the stage about our story and where we find ourselves here when we come to Luke chapter 7. Obviously, our main character is the centurion, and he lived in the town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on the north, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, up in, up in Galilee. And um, this is where we find the centurion. This was his hometown. Also, Capernaum was Jesus' hometown. And Jesus probably made his hometown there for several reasons. One, many of his disciples lived there, including Peter and Andrew, James, John, and even Levi, who would become Matthew, the former tax collector, who lived and worked there as well. But Jesus probably lived in Capernaum because it was a very uh, strategic place from which he could preach the message of the gospel and the kingdom of heaven. In fact, when you look at Capernaum, you notice that the international highway ran through it, connecting several important cities and creating a constant flow of traffic. Indeed, Capernaum was a happening place. And not only was it a very busy place, but it was also a place located on the border between the the region governed by Herod Antipas and his half-brother on the other side, Herod Philip. And so Herod stationed a garrison of Roman soldiers there to protect the peace of that border area and also to enforce the collection of taxes that everybody who went on that road and traveled that way had to pay. And that's why we find our centurion living in Capernaum. He was, uh, no, with not a doubt, he was a Gentile and possibly a Roman working in the Roman army assigned to Herod. Now, a centurion was the equivalent of a high-ranking uncommissioned officer, a captain, if you will, and he was in charge of roughly 100 men, hence the word centurion. Um, it's fascinating when you begin to read the scriptures because there's several centurions mentioned in the Bible and they're always mentioned in a favorable way. And that's because, as we learn from history, centurions were chosen for their position not only because they had proved their bravery and amazing skills on the battlefield, but also because they were men of character and reputation. Indeed, this centurion, as we're going to see this morning, was a man of character and of reputation. But not only that, he was a very powerful man with a lot of authority and a lot of means, since centurions could make anywhere between 20 to 25 denarii a day, about 25 times the day wage. Now, when we come to chapter 7, we encounter, here's what we encounter. We encounter Jesus coming back from having just preached his most amazing, most famous sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. It says, when he had completed all his sayings or discourse or teaching in the hearing of the people, he went back to Capernaum, his town. And here's what we find the centurion doing when Jesus comes back into town. Um, It says, sorry, and the centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Matthew's account tells us that his servant was lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. I like how Luke puts it in the Greek. He says he was having it badly. Basically, he was having a really bad day, uh, which would be pretty evident uh, seeing as he was about to die. That would be a bad day. Um, But we find ourselves, we find the centurion in a life-threatening situation, a very serious situation. Situation. What's fascinating, though, as we begin to look at this in terms is that is just how he responded. Here's a slave. Here's a piece of property, someone that could be replaced. And yet we find this master, this centurion, highly esteeming or highly regarding the servant, doing everything that he can to save this, this man's life. And that word for highly esteemed means he, he was precious to him. He was dear to him. This is a man that loved his servant. 
Obviously, the, serious, the, I mean, the, the uh, situation was very serious, and the centurion was not willing to ignore it. But he was, he was determined to do something about this. Now, what would he do? We, we find uh, what he would do in verse 3. And this is where we find the first characteristic of this amazing faith that he had. Notice what he did first. The text records the first thing that centurion did was he heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus. You see, if we're going to have faith that amazes Jesus, if we're going to have very powerful faith, strong faith in Christ, we need to be like the centurion. We need to be people who are listening to Jesus. We're hearing about Jesus. Paul makes a very important connection between listening and faith, between hearing and believing. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and following. He says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, faith comes through hearing. Specifically, faith comes through hearing about Jesus, that which has been spoken and uttered about him and that which he himself proclaimed regarding who he was. And we can infer from the text that somehow, some way, this centurion began to hear about Jesus. That somewhere, perhaps either people coming to him and revealing and telling him all that they had heard, or perhaps because they lived in the same town, this centurion had already had interactions with, with Jesus. He had been there in the crowd to hear and to listen. Now, what would he have heard? What would he have heard? Well, he heard several things, several things. He would have heard a man whose teaching and authority was with clarity, with authority and power, like no one else had ever taught, no rabbi had ever taught in Israel. Perhaps he would have heard about how in the synagogue there in Capernaum, in his hometown, how a demon-possessed man had been healed and delivered by Jesus and how a demon had been, had been removed from him and, and cried out, this is the Holy One of God. And how later that day, one of, the, one of Jesus' disciples, his mother-in-law, had been healed by Jesus. And after that, hundreds probably of people came to the house and were being delivered of a disease and released from demons. Centurion would have possibly heard about how a paralytic, a paralyzed man, had been lowered through the roof of a house there in Capernaum, in his own backyard, and been lowered down and brought before Jesus. And how Jesus had healed that man and not only healed him, but claimed to have authority to forgive his sins. Perhaps he would have heard about how Levi, a tax collector, that maybe he even knew, because after all, he was there to guard people like him and to make sure that taxes were collected. Maybe he had heard about how Levi had become one of his disciples and how he had had a gathering for Jesus and how Jesus there had proclaimed that he came for six sinners in order to save and deliver them and to be their savior. And perhaps right before we encounter him in chapter 7, perhaps he had just heard about Jesus' preaching of the kingdom and how to become a kingdom citizen. And how Jesus was looking for people who were poor and weeping and broken over their sin and hungry. Whatever he heard, it was here that the centurion came face to face with someone who was very, very extraordinary. And here's the thing. If we're going to have great faith, we need to spend a lot of time listening 
about Jesus, hearing Jesus. Because, as we've just seen, faith is a very personal thing. And if Jesus is going to be the object of our faith, if we're going to entrust ourselves into him, then we need to be consumed with him. We need to be daily coming to his word to find encouragement there and to be nourished and uplifted by who he is, all of his person and his work. And moment by moment, we need to plant ourselves at the foot of the cross and stare at the gospel and see and hear all that it's proclaiming about God's greatness and who he is and what he's done for us. It's by positioning ourselves in his word and at the foot of the cross and in the gospel that, that suddenly Jesus will become the precious object of our faith. If you want to start having faith in Jesus, that's amazing, that's powerful, then this is where you start. You listen to Jesus, you hear about him. You see, many of us are hearing, but we're not hearing and listening to Jesus. We're hearing from other people, we're, hearing, we're listening to ourselves, but we're not focusing on the one who did amazing things, the one who is extraordinary, the one who is able to help us, the one who declared powerful promises that he alone can fulfill. And often we're dispassionate or unwilling to spend time listening to him. But this centurion was one who, the first thing he was doing was listening to Jesus. He was hearing about this great one. And notice that he just didn't listen, but he heard with ears that were ready to embrace what he had heard. See, having heard all that he did regarding Jesus, this man began to embrace the things that he was hearing. As he grew in the knowledge of who Christ was claiming to be, and all that he was able to do, the centurion found himself captivated with the person of Christ. And all that he had been told about his power and his authority and his identity, the centurion was willing to believe. So you can't act on something that you don't believe to be true and aren't convinced of. See, there's people who have heard, but they've not believed. And the children of Israel serve as a powerful and sobering reminder of this. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, I'm sorry, 4 verse 2, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the, the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. See, the children of Israel, they saw and they heard the glory of God. They saw his great deliverance through the Red Sea and how he sustained them through the wilderness. He heard, they heard the promises that he made to them, that he would bring them into the land and that he would provide for them, that he would wipe out their enemies before them and fight for them. They heard all of this gospel, all of this good news, and yet... It didn't profit them one single thing because they didn't embrace it. They didn't believe it. But this centurion began to be convinced for himself that Jesus, among other things, had the power to save people and that he had come for that purpose and that he was very willing to help people in time of need. And this man was in need. He wanted his servant healed. You see, great faith in Christ begins by hearing about Jesus and embracing what we hear. But it doesn't stop there. Which brings us to our second point. Notice the, the next thing that the centurion did. The centurion sought out Jesus. He sought Jesus. Earlier in the narrative, notice with, with, with me, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Earlier in the narrative, Jesus makes a connection between hearing and acting. Between listening and doing. In the Sermon on the Mount, towards the end of the sermon... In Luke 6, 47, this is what Jesus says. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. 
And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Now Jesus contrasts this kind of person who hears and acts on what he hears with one who has heard but does nothing. He says in the next verse, but the one who has heard and has not acted according, accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. You see, Jesus is saying that there's only two kinds of people. There's those who hear his word, they hear about him and they act on what they hear. And there are those people who hear about him and do nothing with what they've heard. Now notice the further connection that Luke is making. Notice in chapter 7, he says, And after he had completed his sayings in the hearing of the, of the, of the people, he went to Capernaum. And then verse 3, And when the centurion heard about Jesus. You see, Luke is beginning to distinguish the, the crowds who for the most part heard Jesus but did nothing with what he said. With this man who after he had heard, he immediately acted on what he had heard. Because he had embraced what he had heard, because he had, he had embraced the person about who he, he had heard about, he acted based on what he had heard. Notice what the centurion did in verse 3. And when he heard about Jesus, or after hearing about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his servant. You see, the centurion went to who, to who he thought was the most, that were the most righteous, the most prominent men that he could find, the equivalent of the mayor and the city council of Capernaum. And he asked them if they, if they would go and make a request of Jesus that he would come and save this dying servant. And it's interesting, yet not surprising, that the centurion did what he did. He, he enlisted the people that he thought were the, were the most righteous. He looked at himself and didn't think he was righteous at all. So he looked around and he said, where can I find the most righteous people? And so if I find the most righteous people, then maybe they, in their appeal, will, will, will provide the highest chance that Jesus might come and agree to heal this one. What's amazing and noteworthy is what the centurion did. He sought out Jesus. In his moment of crisis, he realized that Jesus was the only one who could save. And so he reached out to him. He called out to Jesus, calling on him to do what only he could do. You see, in the centurion's example, we see perhaps the greatest action that we could ever take after having heard about Jesus and that is to run to him, to seek him above anyone else, and to call out to him, believing that he is the only one that we can put our complete confidence in, our complete hope in. And it's here that we really see what this characteristic of faith really was. It was dependence upon Jesus. This seeking out, this taking action, it was this centurion demonstrating total dependence upon Jesus and acknowledging his great need of this one. We all did this when we came to faith in Christ. What we did is we uttered a prayer and we said, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. Come and be my Lord and be my Savior and deliver me from my sin and deliver me from punishment. And, and we, we, we applied this dependence through prayer. And this is what, what Jesus wants us to do, not only at the moment of our conversion, but every single day. That in crying out to the Lord, that, that we would depend upon Him. In good times, that we would also come to the Lord, knowing that it's, the, it's He who we depend on. It's He who, who, in whom we, ha- we move and live and have our being and our breath. 
He's the one who sustains us. And so we depend on him. And even in bad times, I know for me in difficult times, often the ones I run to are, are people in the church or my spouse or family members. I run to others. And what I'm really doing is I'm looking for them. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking to put my trust in them to deliver me or to help me. But Jesus is very jealous for our loyalty, for our trust, for our dependence. He wants us to be trusting into him, to be totally dependent upon him. And here we find a man who in his greatest moment said, I, I, I need to go to Jesus. He's the one that I need to seek out. If we're going to have great faith, we need to seek Jesus. We need to depend upon him. Well, notice what happens after this. It says, and when they came, that is the elders, came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. You see, this is pretty amazing. The elders actually agree to go on behalf of the centurion. It's not every day that the Jewish elder, uh, you know, leadership in a town get up and go do something for some pagan soldier. But they did it because they regarded this man as righteous, as worthy of this. And not only worthy of them going, but worthy of Jesus doing what this centurion was asking of him. And so they go, not only just delivering the request that he gave to them, but, but beginning to really implore Jesus to lobby on this man's behalf and say, Jesus, you need to do this for him. He is worthy. Literally in the Greek it says, he is worthy for whom you are going to do this. They assumed he was going to do it. They knew he could and would, but they believed he should do it because this man was worthy. And it, this really gives us a glimpse at who this centurion was. He was an incredible man, humanly speaking. Notice what they say about him. He is worthy for you to do this, Lord, because he loves our nation and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, if you're a Roman soldier, uh, you know, there's probably not about, a lot about the Jewish people uh, to love. And this was the reality, that it just was this back and forth, Jews and Gentiles, one hating the other constantly. So that this man, it's odd, it should be odd, it should strike us odd that this man, that it said of him he loved the nation. But that's what it says, that he agapaoed the nation, he loved the people of God. Now, what the writer's saying, what Luke's saying is, he didn't just love Jewish customs and Jewish dress and Jewish food and music. No. He, he looked past the people... And, and loved them because of what united them. And that was their God. He loved these people because these were the people of God, the chosen people. And we see this in the next statement. It was he who built us our synagogue. This man, out of his own money, had financed the building of the synagogue in Capernaum. The, the very synagogue where Jesus had healed and preached and taught and done miracles. It was because of this man that that synagogue was there. And they're saying, look at what he's done. If you go to Capernaum, you'll see a synagogue there. This is the synagogue at Capernaum. Now, this is not the synagogue that the man built. This was built about 200 years later, uh, after Jesus' time. But what's amazing about the synagogue is that it actually sits, and you can see it a little bit in the picture there, it actually sits on the foundation stones or the plans, the original plan of the previous synagogue that this man had, had participated in in building and financing. And if you look at the synagogue, it's humongous. In fact, if you go to the other synagogues in the area, uh, there in Galilee and other towns, it's humongous compared to them. They're pretty tiny. Which means that this man had expended a, a great amount of money to 
into a project where where God's word would be proclaimed and God would be worshipped. See, this was a man who was very interested in the God of Israel, who loved his people, who loved his word, who loved his worship so much that he invested his own money in doing it. But I want you to notice just the contrast between his approach and that of the elders. Here's a man who, despite all of these good things that he had done, did not consider himself worthy to even come to Jesus. And yet these elders, not only did they see him as righteous, but they said, because of this righteousness, Jesus, you owe it to him. And here we see kind of the, the, the philosophy of Judaism and how it worked with this obligation and the system of works and merit. You owe it to this man to do this, Jesus. You ought to do it. Well, what's, what happens next is pretty amazing. It says, now Jesus started on his way with him. In, in Matthew 8, 7, it says, I will come and heal him. Jesus had already declared, I'll do this. I'll come. I will heal him. He didn't say, no, you know what? I don't heal anybody but, non, but, but Jews. I don't heal anybody but Jews. Or he didn't say, you know what? I'm not going to come because you think I owe it to this guy. And I'm nobody's genie or maid. And so I, I'm not going to come. You see, Jesus was more than willing to come in spite of what really was a very arrogant uh, appeal on behalf, uh, on behalf of these elders. Um, and we'll, as we'll see, Jesus didn't do it because he felt obligated to them or to the centurion. He did it because he was responding to the centurion's faith. You see, here we see just the beauty of Jesus' character, how faithful and long-suffering and gentle and kind Jesus was. And everything in the story is going amazingly well. This is pretty amazing. The centurion is getting what he so desperately desired. Jesus Christ is headed to his house to heal his servant. But as Jesus comes closer, something begins to happen in the mind and the heart of the centurion, which brings us to the third characteristic of his amazing faith. The centurion was humbled before Jesus. The centurion was humbled before Jesus. We already got a glimpse of this humility in the way that he, he did not go to Jesus personally. You've got to understand this man. He had total power and authority in this town. He could have sent a soldier and ordered Jesus to come and appear before him, as Pilate would later do to Jesus. But he, he under, already understood enough about who Jesus was that despite his own position, despite his own authority, he respected and esteemed Jesus and felt very humbled in light of him. And here's where we really see the heart of this, of this man and the quality of his faith. We see his humility. Look at, look at what he says next. Verse 6 and following. And when he was not far, that is Jesus, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. You see, faced with the reality that in just a, a few minutes, Jesus was, uh, that Centurion was going to be standing face to face with Jesus Christ, he suddenly was overwhelmed with an even greater profoundness of his unworthiness and a sense of his unworthiness and his sinfulness. And now he sends a second group of men, friends of his. And his message is, Jesus, stop. Don't come any further. Don't come near me. What's going on here? See, what I believe the centurion was experiencing was a Peter moment. A Peter moment. Earlier in Luke chapter 5, we find Peter, after a whole night of, of, fishing, of unsuccessful fishing, being confronted with Jesus, and Jesus says, cast your nets out again. 
And Peter basically says, in effect, look, Jesus, you're a great rabbi, you're a great teacher, but honestly, you're not a fisherman, okay? Uh, but I will do what you say. And as his nets became filled up to the point of overflowing and, and ruining his boats, it's here where, G- where Peter comes face to face with the power and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and he sees himself in comparison to this great one. That compared to Jesus, Peter is simply just a wicked, unbelieving fisherman. And his only response is, Lord, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. See, this is what the centurion was experiencing. And as Jesus comes closer, he says, Lord, I, I didn't even come consider myself worthy to come to you, but I'm not fit for you to even come under my roof. Stay away. Don't come any closer. What amazing humility. Here's a man who had done all these righteous acts and all these righteous deeds, and yet he, he, he does not hold on to any kind of self-righteousness. And here's a man who had all this ability, all this power, all this authority, and yet he doesn't hold on to any kind of independence. You see, often we don't have faith in Jesus because we're trusting in ourselves. Instead of being humbled like he was, we're looking to our position and our abilities, whether that's our job, whether that's our salary and how much we make and how much we have in the bank, how, 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 how physically strong we are and healthy. We look at all the things that, of, of our position and our ability and we say, I will trust in myself. I will exercise independence from God. I don't need him to get through this, whatever I'm facing. I, I have in and of myself what I need. And often we do that and by putting faith in, our, in, our, in ourselves and our abilities, we become independent from God. Or other times, and for, other, for others of us, we, we look at all our good deeds. We look at the ministries we're involved in. We look at the things that we've accomplished for God. And we begin to hold up all these righteous acts. And we begin to put our faith in them. And we say, look, I am righteous before God. And I, I can get myself through this life. I can be my own savior. And not only that, but I can, with my righteous acts, I can come to God and I can make any demand of him that I want. I can say, look at this. Because I've done this for you, Lord, you need to give me this and this and this. But the amazing thing is that this centurion did neither of those things. When he was confronted with Jesus, all he saw was the fact that he was nothing. It's this kind of humility that will produce amazing faith in Jesus as we stop trusting in ourselves and are humbled and instead have nowhere else to look but to the one who is amazing, who is so set apart, so different than us, so much greater. You see, our pride... Our trust in, our, in ourselves is the greatest roadblock to faith in Jesus Christ. And humble people like this centurion, they see themselves as small because they see Jesus as so great. Which brings us to our final characteristic of this man's amazing faith. And that is this, that the centurion embraced Jesus as Lord. He embraced Jesus as Lord. Notice what the text says. Lord! Do not trouble yourself further. He cried out to him and acknowledged him as Lord. And even though this word kurios can mean an owner of land and thus a master in that way or, or a master over people, in charge of, of people, I believe, and it's evident, and as we'll see, it'll be evident from the text, that, that he was looking beyond that definition. And, and when he looked at Jesus, he saw one who had divine lordship, 
who was the omnipotent God of the universe. Notice what he says. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself any further. Stop. Stop troubling yourself. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to to this one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. You see, the centurion believed that Jesus had incredible power and that simply by speaking, he could command away the sickness. That from the mouth of Jesus, there was power over life and death. And further, he was convinced that Jesus could speak healing into existence without even being present with the slave, without having to touch him or administer some kind of medicine to him. That the very words of Jesus were where the power was to be found. He says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. And this is because the centurion saw that Jesus was a man of authority. He would have heard about this earlier in his interactions and having heard about Jesus Notice what Luke 4.32 says, And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In verse 36 it says, And amazement came upon all of them, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. And even in Luke 5.24 we read something similar. But so that you all may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. You see, this Son of Man, this was Jesus, the Son of Man, the very same Son of Man that Daniel saw in a vision where he said, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days that is God and was presented before him. And to him... The Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, the centurion understood that Jesus had been given divine and absolute authority over all of creation by the God of Israel. And that whereas He was simply just a captain over a hundred men, who still had incredible power and could tell people, do this and get, and it would get done. That Jesus was the king with a kingdom and a dominion over all things both seen and unseen. And to the centurion, Jesus was indeed the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, whose angels did anything and everything that he commanded. You see, when the centurion embraced Jesus as Lord, This is the Lord that he embraced. And it's here that we see, out of this embracing of Jesus as Lord, this characteristic of faith that's so important, and that is confidence in Jesus. As the the centurion looked at this one who had total authority, total power, total dominion, total glory, handed to him by the Ancient of Days, he saw one into whom he could put all of his confidence in. That if Jesus just said it, it would be done. And so he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. Just say the word. And literally in the Greek, and my servant must be healed. It will happen. It's got to happen. I believe it will happen. So he believed, like Hebrews talks about, that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. 
Like Ephesians 3.20 says, he believed that he's able to do far and above all, beyond all that we could ever ask or think through the power that is at work in us. See, he, we should be encouraged by this, that Jesus is the one who has all power and that that power is working in and through us. And this, should be, this, 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 this should be an encouragement. This story should be an encouragement to us also, uh, to us who no longer have Jesus physically present. Understand this, that in these ten verses, this centurion never comes face to face with Jesus. The first time he sends the elders, they interact with Jesus on his behalf. As Jesus gets closer, he sends his friends, they interact with Jesus on, on his behalf and come home to find his slave healed. But never, in, at least in these ten verses, does the centurion ever come face to face with Jesus. And this should be an encouragement to us that here's a man who believed in Jesus and exercised faith from a distance. That even though we no longer have Christ physically on earth with us, that we have a God, we have Christ who is exalted at the right hand of God and that according to Matthew 28, 18, has been given all authority under heaven and earth and can do anything. It's into this one whom we ought to have confidence in. Jesus has all power and authority to come to our aid, to get us through life, to protect us from spiritual forces that threaten to undo us, to sustain our very lives and give us strength and get us through the difficult times that we encounter from day to day because he's one who has power and who has authority. And this is what, this is the Lord whom this centurion embraced. Now look at what, look at Jesus' response to all this. In verse 9, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel. In Matthew's account, it says, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. Jesus makes it clear that he was blown away by the centurion's faith. It's fascinating when you look at scripture and the word marvel. There are many times that people marveled at Jesus. His parents marveled at him. The disciples marveled at him. The crowds marveled at him. Pilate marveled at him. But, it's, but only one time is it said of Jesus, uh, one other time is it said that he marveled. And that's in Mark 6.6, 6, where in his hometown of Nazareth, where he had grown up, where the people knew him, he says he marveled at their unbelief. As he was doing all sorts of things, as he was proclaiming all sorts of truth about himself and who he was, there weren't many people believing in him. And he was blown away by that. But this is the only time in Scripture where Jesus, is, it says that Jesus marveled at someone's faith. And even though that's an amazing thought, it's also a sad thought. Because notice Jesus' words. He says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Why was there no faith like this in Israel? Because they weren't listening to Jesus and embracing the things that they were hearing about him. Because they weren't seeking him out as the one, the ultimate one, who could meet all of their needs. Because they were not humbling themselves before him, but instead were trusting in all of their self-righteousness and their good deeds, and even in their position as Israelites, God's chosen people. And because they were not acknowledging and believing that Jesus was the Lord, God incarnate, having come as Savior, the King of the Jews... The one who had all authority and power and dominion, who was from eternity past, who had spoken the world into existence, who had created and sustained the Jews from the wilderness up till now, and had now condescended to enter into their world to bring salvation, to save his people from their sins, who being God, being Lord, could simply speak anything into existence. 
This faith was amazing to Jesus because it sprung up in a place that had no faith. Later on in the Gospels, we hear about how Jesus curses Capernaum. And he says, you will be brought low because if the things that have been said and done here had been done in Sodom, they would have already repented by now. They would have, they would have, they would have, they, they would still be around. It's also amazing faith because it came from a pagan Gentile. And this should really comfort us. This should really be encouraging to all of us because Jesus is opening up and declaring that faith is open to anyone. Regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you come from or who you are, anyone is able to put their faith in Jesus Christ regardless of their background. It's no longer only for Jews. Look at how the story ends in verse 10. When those who had been sent returned to the house, that is his friends, the centurion's friends, they found the slave in good health. I love the ending because it's just a picture of Jesus' faithfulness. You see, we can trust in Jesus because he's faithful. And the ending of this story is is an ending that, that we have had written in our own life story hundreds and even thousands of times where Jesus has come through where we've cried out to him, we've put our trust in him, and he has followed through. He has declared and proven himself faithful and worthy of our trust. Where do you and I stand today? Many heard about Jesus, many interacted with him, many came face to face with his claims and his teaching. But most people did not believe in what they heard. Most people never felt their great need to seek out Jesus personally. They never became overwhelmed with their sin or their unworthiness. And they never embraced Jesus as the Lord into whom they could entrust all of themselves. When Jesus looks at your faith, what does he see? Is he blown away by your faith? Does he say, wow, this is a faith that amazes me, a faith that honors and pleases me. I think if we're, on, if we're all honest, we would look at our faith and, and see that it, often it's very small. And my encouragement would be to those of you who have never put your faith in Christ, you need to look at the centurion and you need to follow in his footsteps. You need to cry out to God. To, 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 you need to embrace him as Savior and Lord and you need to cry out to him to deliver you. And you need to put all of your hope and confidence in him. And for those of us who have walked with Christ for a while. We have had that moment already in, in the past where we've put our faith in Him. My encouragement would be also look at the centurion, follow in His footsteps, do what He did. If anything, just let's this morning start with prayer. Let us be like the man in Mark 9, 24. He said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief, Lord. And let's go to the Lord. Cry out to Him. Because ultimately, as the Scriptures, as the scriptures teach us, This kind of faith only comes from God. And as we look at Jesus, we not only have the one who who was amazed, but we have the one who, who went to the cross to provide that kind of faith to transform hearts that would believe into him. Because of what Jesus has done at the the cross, because of the gospel, we have a Savior who is able to come and to help us to believe into Him and to give us this kind of faith.
I pray that all of us would walk away this this morning just longing to believe into Jesus like this, to longing to entrust all of ourselves into him and having an unshakable confidence in who he is and the fact that he can do anything. He's worthy of all of our trust. Well, let's pray, and as we pray, let's prepare our hearts to worship the Lord with our giving. Join me, Lord, just pray that you would help all of us, Lord, as we look at our own hearts, as we look at our own lives, as we look at, our, at the faith that we exercise on a daily basis, all of us would say we fall short. We don't believe as we ought to. Often, Lord, it's because we're not spending time listening to you. Often it's because we're not depending upon you, but we're running to other people or other things, putting our trust in them. Often it's because we're believing in ourselves. We're looking to our own righteousness, or our own position, our, our accomplishments, our status. We're trusting in ourselves, Lord, instead of you. We're not humbled before you. And often it's because we're not putting all of our confidence in the God that you are, the God who has amazing power and authority and dominion and who can do anything and who has proven himself faithful time and time again in our lives. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that you might be lifted up, that you might be glorified. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.